Hello and welcome to the 23rd episode of Tomorrow Never Knows, a podcast on history, women, politics, feminism and everything else that we fancy talking about. I'm Emma London. I'm Charlotte Lydia Riley. And this is the first in a two-episode series on all things to do with mothers and motherhood. Mm -hmm. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about sort of cultural representations of mothers. Yeah. It's not going to be as serious as in that's the next episode to appear in your ears, but it will be the next in this two-parter, which is going to be broken up by something else. Um, This today, though, we are going to be talking about working mothers. Yes, working mothers in all their forms. And why is that? So, um, I guess first of all we should say welcome back to the podcast, because this is our um, first after a hiatus um, uh, which was a hiatus for some parental leave. Yeah. So we're um, living the politics of that we're going to be advocating in this uh, podcast very much. Um, we, you know, I think both of us are interested in lots of issues to do with feminism in the workplace. Yeah. And mothering and motherhood is quite an important element of that. Mm. Um, I'm really interested in it because, as regular listeners of this podcast might remember, I write quite a lot about sort of women in politics and this sort of thing and lots of female politicians have particular issues around childbearing and having children and being mothers and things like that. I think political women or women in politics are a really good um, case study for what actually goes on in the workplace. There's, mm. there's um, I mean it becomes so visible when they are, there are so few of them mm-hmm. and they're quite often kind of pioneering women or you know women who make the laws yeah. um, and then try to make the laws that will make it easier for them. Some women do that, not all women. No. Um, oh, wow, that's a not all women. That is a not, oh my god, that, maybe that's our first <laughs> not all women. Um, I think there's also a thing that I've been thinking about increasingly as I get older that your I think many women's approach to feminism kind of shifts as they get older as you encounter different struggles and different issues right and so maybe when you're at school your feminism might be framed around I don't know not not being allowed to take boy subjects or having to do girly sport or boys being horrible to girls at school in various ways or you know like now probably lots to do with social media and things Mm. and then you get into your 20s and you might have other particular concerns and issues maybe I don't know um the reclaim the night style feminism about safety when you're kind of going out on your own for the first time and coming home and things a bit of the salary gap as well yeah definitely pay gap and and kind of being taken seriously as well as a young woman moving to workplaces that kind of thing do do you ever cut your hair to become taken I know my sister who is an engineer cut her hair when she mm. <laughs> she's got big curly hair she cut it off and part of that I think is to make herself look a bit older yeah to be serious um I I sort of actually spent a lot of my early 30s growing my hair and then I've, I've cut it a little You're such a rebel yeah I cut it I, I I was growing it actually and I think I I was a bit like defiantly you know you can be a woman in the workplace with like long hair and makeup and ridiculous dresses and things, but also I just, yeah. you know, maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe it was just hair. Um, um, but then I think you know that kind of evolution about feminism and ideas about feminism for many women as they move into their thirties 
you know, the average age of first-time motherhood in London being 34. Mm. I know, which is really older than I thought, right? I'm such an average mother. (laughs) (laughs) That's something to have on a T-shirt. That's a badge of honour. But, yeah, that... For lots of women, your feminism might shift to do with having children. Mm. Or just the expectation that you are of an age where you might be having children. Yeah, and I think that's something that comes into life of very many women who work when they're in their mid-twenties, actually. That yeah. Already then they're sort of started to take a bit, I don't know, like the perception that, that you are like a potential baby-making machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, limits. Was... I I worked for a very female-dominated company when I was a journalist, a magazine publisher. Pretty much all of the big bosses were men, though. But mm. um, on my, in my line of work, there were only really all of my bosses were women, mm-hmm. more or less. But even so, you sort of the general cultural assumption is that it's a problem to become a mother. Yeah. And then I think when you finally do become a mother, I we were talking about this just before we started to record that I. So when I had my first baby, I thought to myself that that wasn't going to be visible in my career. Like mm-hmm. I was going to make it. I didn't mention it on social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and stuff like that. And Being I, I went back. I went back to work yeah. uh, six months later, so I didn't miss out on an academic year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and all, all of that. Whereas this time round, so as we recall this, my youngest baby is about seven months. Mm-hmm. And I've just completely, you know, refused to not mention it. I mean, it's yeah. a big, it's a big thing. But now I sort of feel like I've maybe moved into political motherhood. There's also a kind of, <laughs> which is yeah, it's just like you're just going to have to deal with the fact that I have a kid, and also the world would be much better if people dealt with the fact that all people, well, more people, or both genders have yes. kids. And I feel like I feel like in a way that kind of mirrors a sort of development of feminist ideas about it as well, right? That there's one strand of feminism which would be the kind of Sheryl Sandberg lean in feminism, which would be about, you know, equality is women kind of striving in the workplace despite having children. It's women not being treated differently to men. Mm. Um, It's resisting the idea that you get put on a mommy track, which is really insidious, right? The idea that women get slowly sidelined from big jobs because of the perception they might have children at some point. And Mm. that is really important. Obviously, it's a big, for women in a particular type of high-powered job in particular, that is difficult. Or not being put on long projects because people think you might have a child at some point. Yeah, And there are ways in which sort of denying that your personal life has anything to do with your professional life is quite empowering. Mm. And you're sort of saying, you know, you have to take me seriously. It doesn't matter that I have small children, right? You need to just treat me like another employer, employee. Yeah. But then on the other hand, it in a way it's a much more... No, I don't say it's more political. It's just a different type of politics to say, no, actually, this is a really important part of my life. Yeah. This is part of who I am. You know, the workplace doesn't get all of me, but also I can't... I mean, it kind of goes back to what is what we've talked about a little bit before on, on this podcast about actually, you know, what is a realistic expectation from employers yeah. about how much of you they get anyway, right? And yeah. like, some of the ways in which having children becomes visible to employers is things like refusing to do weekend work. Well, yeah. everyone should be refusing to do yeah. weekend work, really, <laughs> unless yeah. that's part of your, actually part of your job. So. Yeah, unless you have a rotor that stipulates yeah. that you have to be on call on a weekend, then just... Try not to do it. And I think this is this has been quite good for me. It's quite frustrating sometimes. I mean, so I'm coming out of parental leave now. Mm-hmm. I refuse to call it um, Maternity leave, yeah. Else. I know, that's very <laughs> British of me. Um, 
but yes, it's parental leave because I'm a parent. It's, it shouldn't be necessarily just me having mm-hmm. it. Um, but also, I've, I have done a little bit of work throughout it. Yeah. You know, for a few, I've written a couple of articles and stuff for not for academic presses. Mm-hmm. I hasten to add because they're like ten thousand words. I've written stuff that has been like mm-hmm. a thousand words. Um, and actually, because of the way academia works, you had an article come out whilst oh, yeah. you were on maternity yeah. leave as well. So actually, that kind of productivity. It looks different anyway, right? Yeah. Like some of your work came to fruition whilst you were on parental yeah, leave. Yeah, it was just in, in a queue waiting yeah. and then there it went. <laughs> but um, the, the fact that, the, the, well, the personal is really political. It's like yeah. no one, it is impossible to do all the work that that you are set to do if you have to end yeah. up doing it on weekends and evenings. And having kids in the house means that I literally can't. No. I mean, they are too young for me to sort of close the door to my study and go, well, you're just mm-hmm. going to have to play on your own. I have to be in the room with them. There's yeah. now two of them. So they gang up on me. And yeah, one they outnumber to, you now. So. They out- outnumber me. They start trying to feed each other stuff. And, like... It's funny as well, because I think, again, like, yes, on one hand, this is just a demand that we should all be making. And I was talking with a friend recently about how, in our particular line of work in academia, which which kind of bleeds into work and, and non-work, you know, the, the lines between work and non-work work are blurred. We often work quite long um, hours, but don't really realise because we're doing things at home or mm. um, that actually doing things like like having being pregnant in the workplace highlights some of the injustices that are there anyway so the idea that if you can't keep up with a 55 hour week but actually you can keep up with a 30 hour week which is which is or 38 hour week or whatever is perfectly reasonable but it becomes this sort of feeling like you're like not doing your job properly whereas actually you're just not doing the extreme sort of demands of the job i don't know if we've mentioned this before but um diane abbott's I interviewed her uh, with Rachel Reeves, which is also another thing that's happened while I was on mm. parental leave, that the book I was working on with Rachel Reeves, the Labour MP, was published. Mm-hmm. And for that book, it's called Women of Westminster, mm-hmm. The Women Who Change Politics. Um, you should all grab my it, clearly. But we did a lot of interviews with a lot of uh, former and current mm-hmm. women MPs. And Diane Abbott was one of the people who said that she felt, when her son was little, she felt like she was a bad MP and a bad mo- mother. There was no way she could do both yeah. and do them well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she set off three days a week for her son. She didn't do any work on weekends. Mm-hmm. She was with her son and she also left on Friday so she could be with him. She's a London-based MP, so for her that was, I suppose, more possible yeah. than for many others who have to travel yeah. to the constituencies um, where they have family. But it's interesting, like, the idea that you can't do both, and it, it's really infuriating, because I think we're coming to a place now in British political life or British social mm-hmm. relations where it's getting a little bit more accepted that actually having a balance at yeah. all and having a life outside of work does not turn your work into something terrible or poor but might actually enrich in it yeah and it's so there's been recently books written about it and stuff i have a friend Mm -hmm. called annie Auerbach who's written a book called flex Mm. which is all about how we need to be flexible in the way we perceive a work it's called a a modern woman's handbook but i think it probably should be read by quite a lot of men as well i get very frustrated actually with some of the stuff there's lots of stuff around now about the four-day week yeah people talking a lot about the four-day week as being a new 
which is, you know, which is interesting and interesting in terms of, although it often comes down to the idea that you're just as productive in four days as five days, which I think is asking the wrong questions actually yeah. about what employers are a right to demand from people. But I feel like often what's missing from that is the idea about children and childcare and being a mother and actually, or being a parent. Yeah. But obviously, you know, when we talk about these things, you know, the, the, the kind of um, the demands do fall more on women, just statistically. Yeah. I mean, kind of medically, they tend to fall, you know, on the person who's actually physically had the child. Yeah, you need to recover. Trust me. And so the ideas about kind of going down to a four-day working week in some ways are really great and would be really good for people with children. But often, actually, that's not an element that's talked about in in the stuff. I've I've always seen these discussions being had by quite kind of broy politics men, yeah. and they don't seem to think about that. I think it's quite an for me, with one foot in the Swedish mm-hmm. uh, situation, the four-day week is quite an old-fashioned thing. Yeah. And it's more, most people, depending on what line of work you do, clearly, but mm-hmm. most people would benefit from a reduction of working hours every day rather yeah. than having one one yeah. day taken off. And there's also, in Sweden, they like to call it the part-time trap. Mm. And it's the trap that women get into. Yeah. It's also dependent on... If we now talk about women who have sort of middle-class professions, mm-hmm. then most women will be able to, you know, manage still, even if they get stressed and stuff. But we're also talking about people who have slightly more, like, manual labourers yeah. who might need to make more money and work more but are only offered four day weeks yeah. and stuff so um, it's it's a complicated situation where there's like there's no normative woman in this there's no normative no. mother each individual need different things i mean a 1970 ruskin women's liberation conference which came up which is the sort of start of women's liberation in britain in some ways and came up with these four demands mm. Um, And I've been quite frustrated because of the four demands are equal work for equal pay, equal educational opportunities, um, 24-hour nurseries and free access to abortion and contraception. Mm. And the 24-hour nurseries issue I've often seen discussed as, oh, this is a kind of ideological point. It's about making a point about the fact that women are always, you know, on call 24 hours a day looking after their children and so childcare should be available all of the time. But of course, actually, for some women, 24-hour nurseries are necessary, not because you want your child to be taken care of 24 hours, but because you work from... Mm. 9pm until 4 in the morning if you're a night cleaner yeah which is a group that you know the historian Sally Alexander when she was um kind of an activist and hist- well she's still an activist and historian but in the 1970s she did a lot of work to unionize the night cleaners mm. who were all women um, or mostly women and you know a big issue for them was that there was no childcare, even if there was state childcare available of course it's not available overnight yeah and so some of these questions which are sometimes posed as like quite theoretical political questions you know should we go down to a four-day week should we have 24-hour childcare? actually they're not theoretical for quite a lot of people mm. and, and posing them as theoretical and ideological sometimes is a way of sort of taking the power out of the demands yeah I think in politics, the stuff about women and mothers is really interesting. Um, I'm thinking about the work of Sarah Childs. Yeah. And her work to try to make Parliament better, I mean, better for everybody, I think, but from a position of gender equality. And she's lobbied quite hard. And she's a political scientist. She's a professor of political science. And she's done quite a lot of work around the issues of um, proxy voting for people on parental leave, which Mm. has just come in, hasn't it? We've just had the first kind of proxy vote parental leave and um, but also about things like working hours and also things actually you know her her work is a little bit more wide-ranging than that as well and looks at things like the design of the house of commons mm. and things um so the idea of thinking 
you know, Parliament's going to have to move quite soon because Westminster's falling down. <laughs> um, and that, you know, in you, know, you say we're in a kind of different social and cultural moment. And, and if you were going to redesign Parliament to assume that 50% of MPs should be women and to assume that yeah. many MPs, male and female, will have parental responsibilities, how would you design it from scratch yeah. to deal with those things? Uh, recently, um, Rebecca Traster wrote an article about all the women who are now running for presidency in the US for 2020, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because it's, you know, it's a bit of backlash against Trump, who was a backlash against Obama and Mm -hmm. Clinton. So here we go. Hopefully they'll be a bit as successful as he was in running. But it's interesting. And she talks about Elizabeth Warren, this picture of Elizabeth Warren um, Mm -hmm. after she's just given birth to her daughter. And she's not an average London woman. I think she gave birth when she was like 21 or 22 yes, or something. Yes, she was very young, wasn't very she? Young. Um, and it's interesting is the, the mother says politicians, but in reality, what she's saying in that article is that the fact that there are so many women running mm-hmm. now kind of puts a spotlight on the fact that the men who are running are dads who yes. are running. Yeah, yeah, they have to actually acknowledge and talk about and think about themselves as being family yeah. actors, right? Yeah. Not just as, as politicians. And then they also... It, for those of us who are interested and hear these things in a maybe different... We've trained our ears to hear it. <laughs> the way that people like uh, Beto O'Rourke, for instance, had, mm-hmm. had said in an interview, and this is all quoted yeah. in Rebecca's article, said that oh, that his son had said, oh, Dad, if you run for presidency, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cry all day. Mm-hmm. And that's like a cute story yeah. that, that Beto can use yeah. Yeah, to... Yeah humanize himself and you know he comes across as being quite a good dad Mm -hmm. clearly solely for the the only reason is that he listens to his son or like has conversations with his son (laughs) if hillary clinton had said early i mean earlier when when chelsea was younger when young when chelsea was a child right if Mm. hillary clinton had said oh my daughter said i don't want you to to work in politics because i'll cry all day yeah, but I've done it anyway. Yeah, it would be. I mean, it would be worse than Any the moment she refused people. to bake the cookies, right? If yeah. she admitted to the fact she was doing something her child had said would cause her child pain. Yeah, I mean, also didn't Beto also say um, his wife is Jen, right? His wife is Jen or Jennifer or something. I'm sure he also gave um, an interview where he kind of talked in detail about how wonderful, like how difficult it was for his wife having to do the majority of the childcare and the homemaking and things. And again, this was received as being this incredibly kind of progressive, you know, he's acknowledging that he's really busy. He's And he, you know, he did at least kind of... He's like a fully, fully fledged member of his own family. Yeah, you can see yeah, these yeah, things. Yeah, like good, he framed, good on him. He definitely framed it, you know, in a kind of apologetic, a kind of like, you know, it is really hard. She's having to do the bulk of stuff at yeah. the moment. The reason I can do this is because my wife can stay and look after the kids. But it's also, you know, it's it just... It would be very, it would be very interesting to see, or like, how long do you think we'll have to wait until a woman running for an office can can do that same thing? Like, yeah, quite kind of casually saying, yeah, oh, well, the man is looking off the. Ca-. Yeah. I suppose Jacinda Ahern, uh, Arden, sorry. Yeah, I mean, she Prime Minister of New Zealand is the only person I know of who's who's done something similar. I mean, it's interesting though because, and we've talked about this in in earlier episodes where we've talked about women in politics, and we've talked about the difference about being a woman on the left and a woman on the right. And mm. obviously, you know, the the most probably the most sort of the woman in American politics who most weaponized being a mother recently is Sarah Palin. Yeah. Who really, you know, and she Literally ran weaponized. on the. I mean, exactly right, and she ran on the idea that she was, you know. Um, 
like a bulldog in lipstick or whatever. You know, that idea of herself as being, you know, oh, mother's... Yeah, hockey mom. Yeah, right, hockey yeah. mom. Like, mother's being terrifying. You know, I have all these kids and I can... You know, and she was kind of partly undone by family scandal, right? Her daughter mm. got pregnant very, very young. and But but actually, she's able to do it... In, she's able to use motherhood and lean into motherhood and talk about it. And there are things that are available to you if you're willing to lean in into a certain type of femininity yeah and women who are making political careers where they don't want to endorse those kinds of gender stereotypes mm. are going to find it harder yeah whereas men benefit from not endorsing the gender stereotypes men benefit from saying oh i'm a really hands-on dad mm. but they don't really lose out by not doing that either yeah. i mean it's like the thing there's good research right that shows that um men in academia benefit from having parental leave yeah yeah yeah. not even just because they use it to secretly finish all of their articles well they do that not so secretly (laughs) but not even because of that just generally because a man who has children is within the kind of academic framework of promotions and things they're seen as being steady and responsible and someone who'll stick around and who needs kind of more work and Mm. whereas women who take parental leave lose out for various reasons right for lots of different you know there are lots of different things that might undermine you um i think one of the one of the kindnesses in academia among a kind of sisterhood of academia has been women who are more senior to me who have children talking openly about it yeah but it's it's open in a kind of, you know lots of women's like women start to confide in you yeah i don't have children i don't have children yet um and even saying actually professionally saying i don't have children yet right would it implies i'm going to have children at some point it's like a bomb underneath this chair exactly somewhere. I'm not going to mention that in my appraisal, but that's, you know, that sort of, um, that, you know, kind of female professors talking about when they had their children yeah. and what they did. Although I've also received some quite odd advice, not not just from women in, in academia about, child, you know, get the book out before you have the baby. Yeah, I, I've had some really good, good uh, res- sort of, when people find out, well, both when I was pregnant and when I had a baby and then when I was pregnant again, there's been some quite reassuring stuff. Like, I remember Krista Kalman telling me we were at a conference in Reykjavik together when my daughter was six months, my eldest was six months. Mm -hmm. And she was saying, yeah, there's at some point, because I quite like to ask people if they have any advice. And she was like, at some point, you're going to have to just do something and you have had no time to prepare because everything Mm -hmm. has fallen apart at home and, like, all the kids are ill and you're ill and you're just going to go and, like, give a lecture for an hour and you Mm -hmm. have no preparation. That's going to happen. And, and it fun. hasn't so far. So I, I sort of count every year that passes without that happening as some sort of victory. But yeah. I also, I feel quite reassured that that seems yes. to be like something that happens. There was also, um, uh, Pamela Scully told me that this is probably the absolute worst time to have a baby is straight off your PhD, which is when she also had hers, I think, mm-hmm. her first. Um, and then what I've done again to have another one is also probably the like, you know, a really bad idea. But, you know... It, it, but also, it's it's life it happens this is this is how it works and this is you know the the idea that a university can't appreciate um child's sort of the productivity involved in mm-hmm. creating students of the future yes is incredibly yeah, we're literally producing children for yeah you. marilyn young who um who passed away a couple of years ago but who was a, a historian of american foreign policy um, and had had children, and um, but was also, you know, she was a very active activist and, and things. Um, and she told me, um, me and a, and a couple of other sort of female historians, um, that 
children are very adaptable and will just go wherever you go because they don't have a choice. Oh, that's very we were talking about travelling for work and, mm. you know, you know, after a certain point, we, we were in D.C. at the time and so lots of uh, lots of us had kind of gone to America for this big workshop for a month and, and there was, I think we were having a discussion with about, you know, how that becomes more difficult when you have children and one of the historians who was there had brought her, had brought her children with her mm. um, and Marilyn just said, you know, children just have to put up with it and they're fine. Yeah, and this is like, people keep telling me their kids are very flexible, so mm-hmm. I'm... Um, resilient. Um, I, resilient. A lot of female academics have been like, children are very resilient, they're very resilient. <laughs> <laughs> so those are some good tips to hang on to for the future, guys. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yes... Um, I don't know, the other thing I think about, sort of, we've talked a little bit, we've talked quite a lot, I think, various podcasts, about... Um, motherhood in the workplace as a kind of a performance a skill within the workplace it's not actually necessarily related to you having children oh yeah in reality right the it's kind a, of more yeah virtual motherhood yeah I emotional labor right a form yeah. of emotional labor but there's definitely something to be said about how um as you get older as a woman in the workplace and I didn't I don't think I would necessarily have thought this was something that happened as you got older and now I am getting older and I can see it happening um, you get kind of coded in a certain way by by people that you work with. And so I think increasingly as you get older as a woman, I would imagine particularly have, if you have children, but even if not, you get seen more and more as a kind of maternal figure. Mm. And that works in different ways. So like with students, often it works in a way that you, you, be, you, know, you get seen more and more as someone who can be confided in or who someone who, you know, which is often, you know, can be quite a good thing, right? You get seen. Yeah, more. I quite enjoy that bit of, yeah. of sort of mentoring students. And I, exactly. I, I like knowing that they have someone they can go to exactly. if they have, they have a problem. I do realise that they do go to women mostly. Though. Exactly. I mean, and I, gonna, I, I definitely, I would never want to discourage a student from coming to talk to me about personal problems. I would also just acknowledge that it does that burden does tend to fall more on women than on men. Mm. Um, although I also have male colleagues who have small children, and I think they often also get approached in a similar way because they're oh, seen sometimes because they're seen as approachable. Um, but there's also a sort of thing more generally and poss- probably more insidiously just across workplaces, not just in academia, where you become a kind of work mum. Yeah. And so you're the person who... You know those lovely notes that people stick up in a kitchen, your mum yeah. doesn't work here, clear away your cup yes, or something. Yes, and that sort of thing. Mm. Well, and kind of, you know, like as a... As if my a... mum worked there, she wouldn't be clearing no, away No, exactly, cups, neither would. <laughs> I mean, mine, no, exactly. Um, there's also, you know, there's the thing about... Um, you get told a lot as a woman in a workplace not to bake, never bake... Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I've been told this by a bunch of by a bunch of women. Never bake because if you bake once, you undermine all of your professional authority. You just become the woman who bakes. It's a little bit like Frenigin Wala, who was the first female speaker of the South African Parliament, the mm-hmm. first anti- first after apartheid, post apartheid speaker of the South African Parliament, who uh, very early on in her career decided never to type. If yes. you type, yeah. you become the secretary. There, if you don't type, you become the chairperson. <laughs> there is a really good. Um, there was a really good Financial Times article, I think, by Emma Jacobs, which was seven things that you shouldn't, a woman shouldn't do in the workplace, um. and it was uh, type, take notes at meetings, clean the fridge. Oh yeah. Um, uh, organize the cards, organize birthday oh, cards. God. You know, and again, we've talked about this before about this sort of emotion, kind of emotional labor, kind of domestic labor being moved into the workplace, mm. but these sorts of that kind of idea of the work mum, yeah. the, the sort of competent, capable woman who's very practical yeah. and practical in this way, and particularly in academic workplaces, practical is definitely a critique. Practical is pedestrian yeah. compared to intellectual oh, and yeah. kind of inspiring and genius, right? And yeah. so... 
And I also think practical is kind of preemptive. So you have yes. to do things, you have to plan things. And I think this is something that I've realised having children is unfortunately it comes with territory that you have to just deal with things before they happen because mm-hmm. there's not going to be brain space to deal yeah. with them. This is you know, So I pack, I don't yeah. actually pack before going on holiday wherever several days in advance but mm-hmm. I make the list of yes, what goes yeah, in yeah. several days in advance because I can't do it it's no. you know and I think that might you know I can see how that could be translated into a workplace environment in ways that are not particularly helpful yeah exactly and this is a note to my future employ- um, future colleagues that I am not going to be <laughs> clearing up any any coffee cups I might be making lots of coffee though but yeah well you know you're you are Swedish so. yes I am Swedish but there's a sort of <laughs> I think it's I think it's interesting and I wonder I'm not sure how much that is related to being a mother in the workplace and just being a woman in the workplace. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I think these that, are things that are perceived of women because of the ideas around motherhood. Yeah. This is what we're trying to talk about here. I know someone who went on a um, which is really good his his company offered um first aid for mental health Mm. training Mm -hmm. to all members of staff about 15 people took them up on it it was Mm -hmm. a two-day workshop and it was very good uh but he told me afterwards that there were three men and 12 women Mm -hmm. doing the training and only two men left at the the end of the first day because the other person the third person had to go off somewhere and it's like this is you know we're in also speaking more and louder about the need for men to talk about mental health issues and for men to share and for men to be like emotionally literate and Mm -hmm. talk to people in general and to like combat the stigma around mental Mm -hmm. health but it still predominantly seems to be something that women volunteer to take training for Mm -hmm. right yeah so absolutely I, I, I imagine that the women who were at the workshop also found it incredibly useful and helpful mm-hmm. and there might be several people there who felt like they didn't know how to handle these issues before mm-hmm. but it might also be that in a male-dominated workplace mm-hmm. there ought to be more men than it's, women I think it's, doing a thing like that. Yeah, exactly. It's also, I think it's interesting kind of thinking about mother motherhood and the idea about being maternal. Yeah. We've talked, again, a, a little before and I, I've... I've been thinking a lot, I've, I've thought a lot in the past about ideas about care and caring. Mm. I, I work on, you know, part of what I work on is humanitarianism and this is often, this is often framed around care for distant strangers, right? Mm. Humanitarianism is about caring. I've, I've made the point in, in my work, in my research, that um, the Minister for Overseas Development in Britain has, has been a woman more often than any mm. other ministerial position because humanitarian well partly because it's not that important it's an easy way to get a woman into the cabinet so you mm. look better than you are really on gender issues but it's also it's also for those women who many of whom have found it to be a very powerful office once they have it cause because they get to do stuff and it's ring fence spending and you get to travel yeah. all over the world yeah. um but also you know it, it's it's often a woman often a woman has that role and a man has um a foreign policy role and it and women are caring for mm. for people overseas and and that men are sort of doing serious foreign policy and things and there's a sort of and that that's obviously a quite extreme example and quite a political example but there's ide- ideas about care and caring for people and 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 care is a kind of positive and quite radical thing um there's i remember um 
seeing you know people talking about niceness as a fe- as a female quality women mm. being encouraged to be nice and how insidious that is and how niceness is really problematic actually it's about kind of smoothing over other people's feelings it's a, it's not truthful it's a lot of work and that kindness is much more important actually niceness is about fitting into particular kind of frames of behavior but kindness is is a genuine niceness feels a bit more silent than yeah. kindness and and kindness i think can be radical right you can mm. have kind of a politics of radical kindness i think is quite important and and the idea of care as being associated with a political position brings in kind of maternal in big inverted commas, I'm doing big inverted commas from my hands, kind of maternal <laughs> characteristics yeah. in a way, which can be both positive and negative, right? Because on, on one way, it's a way of bringing motherhood and 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 kind of those, those kind of associated qualities into politics and making and valuing them and making them important and thinking this can be part of a radical political position. Yeah. And those of you who remember the episode we did on... Um, Activism, yes. where we talked about winning Madikisela Mandela, yeah, and how that sort of South African generation of women who, for whom, you know, protecting yeah. the family became a call yes. to arms, yeah. literally, because it was, you yeah, know, they were being bulldozed. Absolutely. I mean, Rebecca Traster in her book Good and Mad, um, which is about female fury, which has it has limitations, I think, as a as a as a book, but is also very interesting. Um, she has a section talking about particular mothers um, and she particularly talks about the mother of Emmett Till who mm. was lynched and his mother made the decision to display him in an open casket before the funeral and thousands of people came to see his body and it became mm. this incredibly famous image of, of uh, you know white supremacist violence in the civil rights campaign and you know Tristan made the argument that his his mother was clearly devastated but she was also angry and mm. she used this kind of maternal fury as a particular form of of political pro- protest that has a particular power behind it, right? Which yeah. sort of goes in a way, in a f- many, many degrees of separation, but it connects that idea of the hockey mum almost, the yeah. idea that being a mother, or the tiger mum thing, right? Mm. That kind of, the, the idea that being a mother gives you a particularly kind of fierce yeah. attachment to yeah. children and a particular kind of fury. I read something recently about how Beyonce has developed as an artist since having children and that mm. it's it's kind of the same thing that she's gone for a m- much more radical um yeah the whole yeah. referencing of of Black Panther I mean looks in, and ideology is is quite interesting. The stuff with climate change protests recently as well. I mean partly that that has people have talked about that because it's driven by children. Yeah. But also I've seen lots of parents not just mothers but but you know, people talking about the care for future generations, yeah, as as being you know, climate change being something you care about when you have kids in a particular personal way, yeah. Not that you can't care about it otherwise. Potentially, yeah. I mean, yeah, I did. Yeah, it's we might have to do a completely separate episode on on how having children makes no difference, but also makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like I didn't have empathy before. No. But actually seeing seeing a woman having to throw a baby out of a burning Grenfell Tower Mm -hmm. on the news while sitting in the sofa holding a one-year-old, that was quite a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, but that standalone episode, prepare yourselves, listeners. Do you have a poem? I do have a poem. Um, So my poem for today is uh, a poem about... It's actually kind of a, a poem about having a mother mm. rather than being a mother. Um, it's a poem by a, a poet called Robin Morgan, 
who was has you know very uh, long line of activism in in women's activism in America, um, and it's a poem called Matrilineal Descent. And the first couple of lines are not having spoken for years now. I know you claim exile from my consciousness. And she talks about sort of looking after her, essentially looking after her elderly mother, um, having had a period of estrangement, I think. Um, and she sort of starts at the end, she says, you're older than I thought, but so am I, and grateful that we've come to this, a ragged truce, an affirmation in me that your strength, your pushiness, your sharp love, your embroidery of lies, all were survival tools, tools as when during our personal diaspora, you stood in some far country blocks away, burning poems I no longer sent you. Um, and the last line is mother in ways neither of us can ever understand I have come home mm. and it's it's a really beautiful poem it's longer obviously than I read out but it's you know the idea of that kind of maybe difficult relationship that that our woman has with her specific mother but that women might have with their mothers and then kind of moment of reconciliation a moment of kind of understanding yeah yeah motherhood and being a mother I suppose mm-hmm. are two three four five six different things <laughs> yes um, our recommendations for today are going to be kind of foreshadowing the next episode, which mm-hmm. will, well, the next episode on motherhood, that is, which will be the episode where we talk about cultural representations of mothers and motherhood. Yeah. So we have two TV series, actually both available on the iPlayer, I think, yes, if you're in the UK. I think so. Uh, which is yours? Uh, so mine, I'm assuming a lot of people who listen to this podcast have watched Fleabag already. I'm assuming all people have watched yeah. Fleabag. Um, if we do have any American listeners, I know you've only just got the second series. So I guess maybe, you know. Just... Don't know if anyone's seen it in Sweden. No, there we go. So our Swedish <laughs> our Swedish listeners, uh, check out Fleabag. Um, in, there are lots of, I mean, I could we could do an entire episode. We could do a whole thing on Fleabag. I've, I'm sort of vaguely obsessed with it. But at the core of it, for for both series, um, maybe more in the second series, is um, Fleabag's mother has died, and she died not long before the beginning of the first series. Mm. And part of one of the trajectories of the story across the two series is about her loss of her mother Mm. and her relationship to her dead mother and also her relationship to her new stepmother and her father and her sister within this new world where she doesn't have yeah um, a mother and a mother who was very like her mm. who she shared you know who who was more like her than the other people in her family and mm. having lost that kind of more that like mooring yeah the kind of anchor of the yeah. of her life of really. her life and, and the thing that connected her maybe to her her family and there's, there's lots of other themes obviously in fully bad but that actually one of the things i thought about a lot whilst watching it was this her relationship to her mother and the way that she mm. talks about her so that's my recommendation my recommendation is Along the same lines, but slightly different, it's Mum, the uh, comedy hmm. series, sort of drama comedy, I suppose, uh, which is also on the iPlayer with um, a woman called Kathy, mm-hmm. who I th- the first season, it's a few years ago now, but I think she has just lost her husband. So I think it might be the day of the funeral, mm-hmm. so after the funeral, and then how she comes to terms with, she's got a son who's in his early 20s, I presume Mm -hmm. there's also he has a new girlfriend in the first season the third and final season has just ended Mm. but just been broadcast in britain um so it's all about how their family constellation as well and like Mm -hmm. it's called mum and she's basically just mum Mm -hmm. but starts to be other things and Mm -hmm. you know realize that she has other adventures ahead of her Mm -hmm. it's really good it's very sweet it's very um also quite sort of close to the bone I think mm. so 
I thoroughly recommend that. So our next episode is not going to be about mothers. It's going to be about foreign policy. It is. And Britain in the world. Yep. Uh, Delusions and illusions, I suppose. Delusions and delusions. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, But... We also do. We're also going to talk again about mothers in the second part to this episode. We're going to talk, as we said, about cultural representations of yeah. mothers and motherhood. Um, the other thing we should say is that uh, we have even more merch now. Yes. So we um, obviously, you know, we've, we've said before that if you would like to donate to our hosting costs, that's brilliant. And um, if you donate more than ten pounds, then we send you some cool branded merch. Um, but we also have made a t-shirt. Yeah. And, and a, a sweatshirt. sweatshirt. Um, and if you are interested in them, uh, you need to order them before the 16th of June because we'll only make them if we get like, the right number of orders. Yes. So, and that again, they're like. Limited edition for a limited time. Limited maybe. edition, limited time. They're all ethical. Yes. Ethically produced. And again, the money is to pay for our hosting costs. Yeah. Um, so, yes, please check it out. Uh, and you'll find us between episodes on Twitter as mm-hmm. at T and K Pod. Yeah. At Emma Eleanor. At Lotta Lydia. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletter. Oh, yes, please sign up for our newsletter and get our footnotes, which we yeah. care about very deeply as historians. <laughs> um, if you're listening to this, I assume you already know where to find this podcast, but you can find us anywhere you normally get podcasts, including on iTunes. And if you listen to us on iTunes, please do rate and recommend us. And people have people. done that, which is quite which helpful. Is very exciting. Yeah. Um, but that's it for now. Okay. See you again next time. See you soon. Bye. Bye.